This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to a special Beyond the Studio book club episode. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, it's Nicole here, and I'm so excited to tell you more about one of my favorite tools beyond the studio, Artwork Archive. I've been using Artwork Archive for years now, and it's been completely game-changing for me and the way I organize and keep track of my work. Artwork Archive is an all-in-one platform to run and organize your art career. It helps you catalog your artwork online, create an online portfolio of your work, send professional polished PDF reports within seconds, and so much more. Before Artwork Archive, I was manually updating PDFs with pricing or new images every time somebody reached out expressing interest in my paintings. It was tedious and time-consuming, and I could never remember which versions I'd sent out to which collectors or consultants. It is so easy now for me to share images of newly available work, to pull up records of all my sales, and to quickly at a glance see where my work is located around the world. If you're serious about growing a sustainable art career, then you need a platform like Artwork Archive to track and manage your work. It's the most cost-effective way to run a professional art career. You can get started for under $5 a month with our exclusive discount. Head to www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Before we get started with this episode featuring William Derezowitz, author of the new book, The Death of the Artist, we are excited to be announcing a giveaway. We are giving away a hard copy of the book, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech, which we'll be discussing in this week's episode during our interview with the author, Bill, and it is so good. If you want to be entered to win, it's really easy. Just leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to our show page or search for Beyond the Studio in Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the bottom, and beneath Ratings and Reviews, tap Write a Review. These are so valuable for us as they help others get to know the podcast and new listeners discover Beyond the Studio, and it's been a personal goal of ours to get to 100 ratings by the end of the year, and we are almost there. We're giving you two weeks to enter, so leave us your ratings and reviews by December 1st, and we'll announce the winner in our email newsletter that goes out alongside our episode release on December 3rd. You can also purchase the book online, and you'll hear why during this interview, we do not recommend you purchase it through Amazon. Instead, we've added a link in our show notes for you to buy the book while supporting a local bookstore through bookshop.org, and we've created a list that includes all of our favorite professional development books for artists, including ones like Art Slash Work and Living and Sustaining a Creative Life, written by other previous podcast guests. So if you're looking for a holiday gift for an artist in your life, then check out our list of recommended books by The Death of the Artist Online or another one of our favorite professional development books for artists and consider yourself an honorary member of the Beyond the Studio Book Club. And don't forget to enter our giveaway to win a hard copy by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts by December 1st. And now on to the interview. 
On today's episode of Beyond the Studio podcast, we are really excited to be talking with William Bill DeResowitz, who is an award-winning essayist and critic, a frequent speaker at colleges, high schools, and other venues, and the best-selling author of Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life, and his newest book, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. His work has appeared in places like the New York Times, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, and The American Scholar. And Bill has taught English at Yale and Columbia uh, prior to becoming a full-time writer in 2008. In 2015, he penned an article for The Atlantic called The Death of the Artist and the Birth of the Creative Entrepreneur. And today, we're really here to talk with Bill about his most recent book, which is The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. So, Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Um, absolutely. Uh, when we first learned about your book, The Death of the Artist, it it struck us as a pretty bold title for starters. And I'll admit it was a little hard to read at times because I think that many artists would agree the stories in your book will hit a little close to home and sound for many a lot like our personal lived experiences. But it's also a fascinating and hugely important look at the structural difficulties of supporting creative work and how the digital economy is impacting the conditions in which artists are living and working today. So I think we would love to know a little bit more about you and what brought you to write this book. Yeah, uh, and then we can also talk about that title later if you'd like to. (laughs) Um, definitely. For sure. I was an English professor and someone who's always loved literature. Obviously, I was devoting my life to it. There's a fun and little known fact about me. I was a dance critic in New York in the 90s when I was in graduate school. I mean, art has been incredibly important to me for my entire adult life. And so that's definitely one source of this. The, the, The aspect of the book that sort of thinks about how the underlying economic conditions that have changed for art maybe changing the art that we're getting uh, comes, I think, from that place. And also the place of gratitude for artists. You know, the part that's the the gratitude for artists comes from that place as well. But the sort of inciting thing for the book was hearing for all of these years this Silicon Valley obvious nonsense about how this is the greatest time in human history to be an artist because of the Internet, because the gatekeepers are dead, You don't need a gallery or a label or a publisher. You can just put your stuff out there and reach your audience. And, you know, things are going to be, you're going to be able to have a career doing what you love. And that always seemed suspicious to me, partly because I was also hearing, as we all were, I think, from musicians ever since Napster, that they couldn't make a living with anything that they put online. So there were these dueling narratives. And the truth is, I didn't write the book to find out which one was right. Because I knew that the artist one was right. I knew that the Silicon Valley thing was BS, that things were really tough for artists. The real reason I wrote the book, it's in the first word of the subtitle, How Creators Are Surviving. I really wanted to figure out the how. Like Things are obviously really bad, but at the same time, a lot of people are obviously still making art. And I wanted to understand what that looked like and maybe sort of dig a little deeper into that, like, is it an even playing field the way the, you know, the internet apostles say that it is, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter your race or your wealth or whatever, uh, you know, things like that. 
Yeah. Well, the intro of your book sounds a lot like what we are trying to do with the podcast, which is just demystify the realities of being a working artist. And we share a lot of artist interviews. So really telling that through the personal lens of individual artist experiences. But what I love about your book is that it's almost like you took all of the the interviews um, from beyond the studio and then applied uh, a PhD and a macro view of economics, neither of which we have. So I'm really, really excited and interested to learn more about some of these larger structural shifts that you talk about in your book. Oh, yeah, thanks. And, you know, thanks for saying that. I mean, the, the book, I did do a lot of research. Uh, I should say I do have, I have no formal training in economics, but I don't think the, I mean, the economics that I, it's not high level economics. It's really just kind of paying attention to what's going on to what people are saying, making connections. But the heart of the research was 140 interviews with working artists, just like you guys do. And that was also the best part of doing the book because, you know, I, I talked to people for a long time. I, I got to, I got a sense of their lives and their passion. And uh, they were really kind of, you know, intimate experiences, at least for me. And yes, and I used what they told me. And then I also used the other research I was doing. So what are the, what are the macro issues? The most obvious thing is what the internet has done to digital content, to the price of digital content, whether that's music or writing or, you know, all kinds of different visual art, illustration, design, animation, cartoons, video. Well, what it's done is it's, it's priced the content to zero or near zero or so little that it's not even worth talking about. That's the revenue side. And, and then all kinds of other ways in which revenue has collapsed, like what Amazon has done to the publishing industry, what Google and Facebook have done to journalism. And I think this comes up for visual artists too. You know, if you're an illustrator and you're drawing something for the Times or the New Yorker, I, I have an illustrator in the book who, who's, who's worked for both of those and, and for all kinds of other places. You know, she's sort of barely making ends meet. Then there's the, uh, the side that nobody thinks about in this connection which is the, the other side of the balance sheet, the cost. This is not directly related to the internet, although it is indirectly related. Rent has gone up over 40% since 2000. That's adjusted for inflation, over 40%. And I'm sure I don't need to explain this to you or your listeners. And, and rent in the creative centers that artists tend to live in, like the Bay Area, LA, New York, Chicago, those rents have gone up even more. And then the other thing that keeps going up and up and up is tuition. So a lot of artists go to get out of my face. I would say many, many artists go to college. Um, those costs have also soared and soared and soared. Yeah, let's talk more about this relationship between art and tech, um, which is especially of interest to artists living here in the Bay Area. Um, you know, I'm a painter living in San Francisco, so I really identify with that friction that exists um, or is really apparent in things like housing and studio costs. You know, this is the heart of Silicon Valley, um, like you talk at length about, but it's also, you know, Oakland is a center for artists. And so there are those more localized ways that the tech industry is impacting the way that artists are living and working um, in these city centers, but it also extends beyond that. And it sounds like these platforms that are out there that exist to help artists make a living, like you've mentioned, um, Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, uh, music streaming services like Spotify or Amazon for publishing 
um, are great for, for customers and users, but are actually terrible for artists. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and just share some examples of how um, these platforms are not really set up to support independent creators. Sure. And let me say, first of all, that um, I, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book about issues of rent and space and gentrification. And I went to Oakland in particular to, to report that chapter. And I talked to a bunch of people there because actually I have an old student who's a documentary filmmaker who told me about moving to Oakland because he got priced out of San Francisco. And I, you know, I still thought of Oakland as like a relatively cheap place, working class, lots of people of color. Um, and then I, then I found out it was already the fourth most expensive rental market in the country. That giant tide of wealth that's washed up from Silicon Valley to San Francisco and then across the Bay. It's just really incredible. What's the role of the platforms? The platforms, unlike the, the evil culture industry, the evil suits, and I'm saying this in quotes, of the gallerists and the labels and the publishers uh, and the Hollywood studios, they have no incentive and no need to invest in artists. I mean, the one thing you can say about the culture industry is that it makes investments. We can disagree about the investments it makes and how much and how much, you know, maybe malign control it exerts over the stuff that people make. You know, your gallerist asking you, can't you do that thing that was selling? I don't really, you know, now you're going in this direction. What am I going to do with that? But that person is invested in your success because their success is tied to your success. The platforms don't know. They don't care. They don't need to care because they make money with traffic. They make money with clicks. I mean, we all know this now in our private lives. They're selling our data. They're selling our information. And when, when creators put stuff online, when they, when they put it on Facebook, uh, when they put it on YouTube, or they don't put it on YouTube, but YouTube finds it because somebody pirates it, or Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Yep. YouTube is owned by Google. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's generating clicks. And, you know, they don't care if a million people generate one click each or one person generates a million because they're not investing in any of them. So one of the worst ironies of this free content thing where artists are not getting any money or very little money is that free content generates tens of billions of dollars a year. That, but it goes to the platform. Yep. Yeah. So you talk about one of the largest shifts happening um, as the demonetization of content um, and how this digital economy has shifted the way that we access and consume information um, and then financially what that means for artists. Um, and I, I want to get more into how this how this impacts artists. But um, I also wondered if we could talk about how this increase in accessibility might be influencing the perceived value of the art itself, um, which I know is something else you also talk about in your book. Right, for sure, for sure. I, I compare art now, I think music in particular, but it's true of everything. It's like water, like you just turn the tap and it comes gushing out. You know, you put on Spotify and you just get a, or Pandora and you just get a stream of stuff all day long. And because it's free, it also cre has created the expectation that it be free. And for better or for worse, because we live in a market economy, you know, we tend to think or feel that there's a rough correlation between the price of something and the worth or value of something. So if something is free, it can't be worth very much. And I quote the indie uh, rock icon, Kim Deal, uh, who said to me, you know, I remember at a certain point, music just became trash. It was like a something that you had to like pick through because there was so much of it. And another musician who's been working for a long time and has had the rug pulled out from, un from under her named Nina Nastasia 
talked about a fan coming up to her at the merch table after the show and picking up one of her CDs and just ask, asking if she could just have it. Can I just have this? Uh. Because, because, you know, so now we see the expectation of free bleeding over from the digital to even physical stuff. I, I want to throw in one more thing. I don't know that this is a problem that started with the internet. I think it's been an old problem. I think the internet has exacerbated it. A lot of the ways that artists make money come from businesses and even arts organizations and nonprofits. And I think there also, there's this idea that like the one person you don't have to pay is the musician or the artist. You know, can you just, can you just play at my thing? Can you just play at the opening of my restaurant? And, and nonprofit organizations, art spaces, like do not compensate or do not adequately compensate artists for all kinds of educational programming that they provide, like uh, being on a panel or giving a talk or presenting your work. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of something that's expected to go with the with the business, but they're asking you for something valuable, and you should ask to be paid for it. Yeah, I know this is the book was extremely relatable. I Nicole and I sort of represent in our little small individual family units a few different types of artists. So, like, I'm a visual artist and illustrator and obviously a podcaster as well. And I'm married to a musician who experiences all the trials of being a musician. Nicole works in the art academic world as well as being a visual artist herself. And her partner is a graphic designer who does a lot of freelance as well as creative directing work for a larger business. And there was something that you had said, and I guess this sort of Uh, harkens back to what you had just said about brands and businesses often kind of faking poverty so that you will give them things for free. And I had not thought of it in that way before. And when I read that, like with the idea of calling something a startup, and it just, ooh, it it like made my blood boil. And thinking about brands like not wanting or uh, expecting you to not follow up with invoices and expecting you to forget them, which it immediately made me go through my email. And I was like, oh, there are invoices that I have to pursue right now. And there was one from a publisher that I had to chase down. And they were like, oh, we didn't realize we didn't pay you. I'm like, yeah, I almost didn't either, which is insane because it's all necessary. But it was honestly one of the most relatable books I've read in a while because every story was like, I feel like this is about me. Like, it's so... Relatable, and I think artists across every field are feeling these same struggles. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. First of all, of course, thank you for saying that. It really feels great to hear that I sort of I got this right. I think it's partly because while I definitely do not consider myself an artist, I don't write fiction, I don't write poetry or drama. Um, I am a freelance writer, so some of this stuff, you know, I mean, the truth is just the other day. There's this back when people set up these websites to sell you individual articles, like for a dollar, this place reached out to me and we signed a contract and they put up a few of my pieces and they were supposed to report and pay quarterly. They never, ever do it. You know, I like, so like once a year I put it in my calendar to bother them. It takes me like 10 emails and six weeks to get them to pay. I actually, oh. to be honest, I, this year I finally said, you know what, you're not paying me enough to make this worth it. So you have to take my stuff down and send me the last check. But it was so obvious to me that their business model was based on people forgetting because it's only $100 a year or $50 a year. 
As I mentioned in the book, there's an illustrator named Jessica Hish, H-I-S-C-H-E, Jessica Hish, who's got a flowchart called Should I Work for Free? It's great. And that's the one oh, yes. that I quote, know of it. <laughs> right, where she says, like, you know, they're pleading poverty. It's like, you know, no. Including, especially like the startup, like they will say, well, we're startup. Well, like too bad. And I also say, <laughs> you know, if your business, <laughs> yeah, we're startup too. And I also say, like, if your business model involves not paying people, it's not a business model. It's a criminal conspiracy. Yes. Louder for the people in the back and for the people on top. <laughs> That's right. Um, and we can link to that flowchart in the show notes so that people can see it. I immediately looked it up when I read it in your book, and I was amazed that I had not seen it sooner because it was so real. I greatly appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask if it feels really meta to be discussing all of these topics on a podcast that's freely distributed um, about a book that can also be bought through... Streaming platforms like Audible subscription model. Uh, there's so much. There's so much that's meta about having written this book, including the sense that I was potentially describing some of the bad things that could happen to this book. There was no moment in the writing of this book where that consciousness was more painful than when I wrote the line, "The extent to which you can just get randomly screwed in the arts is heartbreaking." Yes. And then the pandemic happened a few months before my book came out. Uh, but, you know, everyone is dealing with this. I mean, we, maybe you want to talk about this later or not at all. But, you know, everything I write about is 10 times worse now. Yeah, I definitely wanted to ask because obviously you didn't write this book this year because it came out this year and it takes a long time to write a book. So I am really curious what you're thinking now having, you know, the perspective of the book and now this entire year that has been ridiculous in every, in every way, what are your thoughts now on that? Oh, gosh. Well, that's like a, a vague question, but no, no, it's okay. Go wherever you want with it. It's an important question. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that because you can't make much money at all putting stuff online, artists have been told to shift their revenue streams to things that can't be digitized. So physical objects and live, usually in-person experiences, talks, fan conventions, cruises, workshops, classes. I know some of that stuff happens online. And, and live performance has been one of, the, one of the crucial ones. Obviously for musicians, it's been everything, but even for writers, it's been a huge thing, talks. What happens when, you know, now that you, okay, so you've kicked out the digital stool, which was the main thing, rec selling recorded music, selling, you know, whatever, freelance journalism. Now you've kicked out the, the live event uh, leg of the stool. It's, it's, I mean, honestly, I think the word depression doesn't even begin to cover it. The American, Americans for the Arts, which is that big advocacy organization, just came out with a study last week that 63% of artists are fully unemployed now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. In other words, there's never been a better moment to be talking about these things. And I think much of what we're describing, um, again, is probably not unfamiliar to our audience because it has been their lived experience. And I know that we have all 
Um, we've all dealt with those instances of <laughs> being asked to work for exposure or having to chase down payments or just, you know, trying to navigate this world as independent artists that doesn't doesn't necessarily um, support either financially or in terms of just, you know, how we value um, art as a whole. And those things are, are already challenging. And then you add on top of that all of the changes from this year. So it is immense, but I'm also grateful that we are having this conversation with you now because I'm sure we'll get to all of this a little bit later too, but it is really a time for reimagining and to to be having these open and honest conversations in our opinion. For sure. I just wanted to return to this idea of value for a minute too, because something else that you said that I thought was kind of interesting towards the beginning of your book was that being, I think this is a quote, or maybe I just wrote it in response to something (laughs) more eloquent that you said, but you mentioned that being an artist is not a job, um, but in economic terms, it is a business. Or in other words, there must be a demand in order for it to be sustainable in what we might describe as a market economy. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by this, why it might be triggering for some people in the arts, and just how you're thinking about the work of artists. Sure, sure. And this is this whole chapter. I mean, right after the introduction where I just tell you what the book is about, I have a chapter called Art and Money. And I know that that, that that very phrase can be triggering, and a lot of the things in the chapter can be triggering. And in the chapter, I say that I myself you know, that that article that came out five years ago called The Death of the Artist and the Birth of the Creative Entrepreneur, I was still writing that from a place of, you know, money is evil, art and money should never touch. If you think about money as an artist, you're a sellout. What's wrong with kids these days? And, you know, they all want to self-brand and self-market, seriously. <laughs> and as I started to do the research and talk to people, and some of them pushed back on this, I realized, like, yeah, that's complete nonsense. I can't believe I ever thought that. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the attitude that people carry around, including a lot of artists. So in that chapter, Art and Money, I really unpack a lot of these uh, myths and attitudes that are destructive, that are, that are self-defeating. And I try to talk about what's the real relationship between art and money. I mean, in general terms. And I say that, you know, art is work. Let's first recognize that. And because art is work, artists are workers in a certain sense. Um, you know, they do work that should have financial value because it has value for other people. But then I also say, you know, well, it's true that in the sort of 15 or 20 things that an artist might do in a typical year to put a living together, some of those things can be described as actual work, you know, paid employment, even if it's just a, you know, gig work, one at a time employment. The basic sort of act of, you know, going into your studio and making art that you hope to sell or into your study and writing a book that you hope to sell. That's not work in the sense of, it's work, excuse me, it is work. It's not a job. That's the point. It's not a job. It's not a job in the sense that anybody asks you to do it. So you shouldn't, get, shouldn't expect to get paid just for doing it. If it has value for other people, then you should expect to get paid. And if it's not a job, what is it really? Well, it's really, really, it's very, very small scale capitalism. It's self-employment, which means that you're taking some kind of capital. It may be the capital that you invested in your tools, in your education. It may, the capital may be represented as a grant or an advance. And you're using it to produce something. I mean, it's not industrial capitalism. This is a, you know, a workshop where people are still working with their hands, which very few people still do anymore to make a living. And then you're putting it on the market, hoping to recoup 
the investment, the capital investment, and to generate a profit. It's not a profit that's going to go to shareholders or necessarily into your portfolio. I mean, it will go into your bank account, hopefully, and it will enable you to make the next thing and to live and to pay rent. And hopefully there will be some kind of profit that you can sock away in your, you know, in your IRA or whatever it is. Yeah. In the book, you had talked about how often artists will not even think of their finances in terms of like what they're making in a year, but really knowing their monthly numbers of knowing what they have to make. And when I read that, it hurt to read because I was like, this is me. I know this. This is so relatable. And I mean, I am sure folks listening can feel that same thing. And it's so, I don't know, it, it thinking month to month and the difficulty of thinking long term when so much of our income is wrapped up in the next project, fun, you know, paying yourself back for the previous project and not really thinking about your real life needs on top of your creative needs. Yeah. So first of all, let me say that as someone who was employed as a college professor uh, and then 12 years ago suddenly became not employed, part of what I was trying to do in one of the chapters was explain to people who have who get a paycheck, who have a salary, what it's actually like not to have a salary. Like, it's really a thing. It's like, you mean, like, every check I'm going to get is going to be in specific result of one specific thing that I did. And if I don't do things, the checks will not come. They will not be direct deposited into my bank account on the first of every month or whatever it is. Yep. Um, and part of that is this incredible variability in income from year to year or month to month. I mean, it could go up by a factor of five and then go down by a factor of 10. And as you said, uh, and you know, this is, again, all of this comes out of the, the interviews. A young cartoonist who's who's really been sort of, you know, at or near the poverty line for the last few years, but she's sort of staying afloat. She's making it work. She said, you know, me and my friends, like, you know, we can't, she talked about the bingo card of a comfortable lifestyle. Like, oh, like things on the bingo card would be like a dentist's appointment, you know, or maybe a vacation where I can actually not work. Um, oh, and yeah. how hard it is, first of all, how hard it is just to fill out the bingo card, but also I think you were saying like how hard it is to sort of plan long-term for your career, because if you did have a windfall, you would fill out the bingo card. You would like go and get your teeth cleaned for the first time in five years, as opposed to yeah. being able to create some financial space for yourself so you could imagine the next project. Yeah. Yeah, well, another one of the challenges that comes with this kind of reality of the artist as as small business owner um, is also related to this idea of value. And I guess I'm thinking of this so much because we recently participated in an art world conference virtual event called Defining Values in the Art World. And a common hurdle with artists being able to make a living from their work seems to to stem from this kind of societal tendency to undervalue that that work or how it gets produced. And so I'm curious if you have more thoughts on this or how that maybe self-advocacy comes into play when we are operating in this sort of market economy where there's already a tendency to undervalue the work that's being made. 
I think this is really hard. Uh, by the way, uh, I, uh, I think I'm going to be speaking at, at the Art World Conference in March, I think it is, which I'm really looking forward yeah. to. Yeah. Um, oh, terrific. Virt- virtually, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really hard. I mean, how do you advocate for yourself? Well, you know, actually, I, I talked to this uh, young photographer named Katrina Fry, who's a pretty amazing person. I don't even know if she's out of her 20s yet, but she, years ago now, started like a consultancy, like she's kind of a life and financial coach for artists in the LA area, and I think more broadly over the internet. And she talks about how many artists come to her who have not learned to advocate for themselves, right? I mean, that's the first thing, is just to learn to do it. Let's Before we get to how hard it is to actually get anywhere when you do it, but the first thing is how to do it. I think she worked for a while at a nonprofit that employed a lot of art, you know, would have artists come and teach, right? A lot of, uh, there, there were a lot of teachers. And she would just be amazed at how the, the artists would just accept whatever contract terms the nonprofit offered, even though they were often ridiculously exploitative, and how different people were paid different things, and how nobody seemed to recognize that they could actually speak up and, and negotiate. Beyond that, and I know this is a hard thing to say to individuals, but I think there needs to be collective action. And I think that it can happen. It doesn't, I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to happen on a grand scale, although that's good too. I was talking earlier about the problem of art spaces, not paying artists for talks and panels and stuff like that. I was thinking about WAGE, the organization Working mm-hmm. Artists in a Greater Economy, which has actually made some progress with great effort, mm-hmm. a lot of data collection, a lot of buy-in from artists to do something about that situation. So... Artists would not be allowed to set prices because that's illegal. That's like a legal collusion. But you can definitely advocate in a given industry or towards a given employer. I mean, that may be hard to imagine and it may have been unthinkable until recently. But we were talking earlier about the pandemic and the responses to the pandemic. People are starting to do that more and more in the arts and not just in the arts. You know here at Beyond the Studio, we are big fans of working smarter, not harder, and creating systems that will help you grow your studio practice. That's why I am such a huge fan of Artwork Archive, the all-in-one platform that helps me run and organize my painting practice and career. If you don't have a personal inventory management system, or you've just been using PDFs and spreadsheets to keep track of all the work around your studio, then you need to start using Artwork Archive. Having a website is great for sharing my portfolio publicly, but I got to a point where I needed something on the back end to help me track and organize all of my work. The work that was outside my studio in exhibitions, on consignment, the work that sold five years ago or got donated to that art auction. Artwork Archive is great for all of this and allows me to pull income reports, track my contacts, and see changes over time to get a clearer picture of how my artistic practice is growing. I was surprised to realize that a majority of my sales one year were coming through a small handful of art advisories, and that I really needed to cultivate those relationships. Now you can even send online invoices, accept digital payments for your work, and receive purchase requests directly from interested buyers. Using Artwork Archive is like having my own personal studio assistant and makes me feel so on top of my art career even when everything else feels like chaos. It is just a no-brainer. And Beyond the Studio listeners can get started using Artwork Archive for less than $5 a month by heading to www.artworkarchive.com beyond. I'm curious, and if you're not familiar with this, then forget about it. But uh, have you heard of this new, it's a music streaming platform called Audius? 
it's um, a like a blockchain based music streaming platform that is supposed to be more supportive of uh, like indie artists where they're able to kind of track their plays and get paid better for it. Um, my husband being a musician had mentioned it to me, but I wasn't sure if you were familiar with it. We had talked a little bit about blockchain with Amy Whitaker on our interview with her. And I have only just started to develop this interest. Uh, so I was wondering if you knew anything about that, but. I don't, I don't. I mean, I have heard of any number of sort of streaming models, streaming services that are going to pay musicians better over the years. And I, and I wish them all well. Unfortunately, the logic of the internet drives everything to the biggest players. I mean, there are other social networking sites than Facebook. There are other search engines, search search engines than Google. But this is a this is a thing that artists alone can't do. I mean, it needs the audience to come along, right, and use that more ethical streaming service. Right, it's not the impossible. Whole... It's just it's just a big it's a big lift. Right, everyone would have to be like, we're all choosing to listen to music here now for that to really work. Yeah, hopeful, but realistic. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, it, right, it's a, it's a long shot, but I do think, I actually have already changed my mind about something that I wrote in the book, which is that uh, a sort of consumer movement for art, I, I was a little dismissive of it. People have said to me, people said to me, oh, we should have an art movement like we have a food movement for ethical consumption. And I didn't think it was likely for a couple of reasons, but I've been starting to change my mind about that. Partly because of the new conditions where people are more aware of things like this, but also because I'm not so willing to give up on it. You know, the idea that it's going to be impossible to get people to be more ethical consumers of music and pay a little bit more. I think we need to actually try in a concerted way before we decide that it's not possible. I'm curious what, I guess, if there is anything specific that you had been seeing this year that is giving you like any specific examples that's giving you more hope for this idea of, of uh, people being more willing to have more ethical consumption of art. I know I've definitely observed sort of in the beginning of the pandemic, there was this movement of artists supporting artists. And I felt like all of a sudden people that followed me that had never, you know, bought anything from me were suddenly like, hey, can I Venmo you some money? I really love your work. And that had never happened before. And I was suddenly thinking of doing the same thing myself, where it's like, maybe I don't want to buy something necessarily, but I do want to support them. And I had never thought of anything like that before. And I know there are more, you know, like there's Patreon where people can choose to support you on a more regular basis. But I'm wondering if you've seen any specific examples this year that I guess where creatives are very creatively finding ways to support one another. I haven't uh, seen that. Although, you know, I think, I think the, the best audience for artists is always are their artists. Art is an ecosystem and people support each other. That was one of the other things that was so moving to me about the interviews I did. Cause I come from academia where nobody supports anybody else and it's all horrible. <laughs> um, and they're, all, they're all just trying to elbow you in the face <laughs> as they climb up the ladder so the generosity and sort of communal spirit of artists was wonderful. I will say not to be cynical, although I tend to be cynical, that what you just described sounds wonderful, but I wonder if it's also sort of like the sourdough starter thing. Like, 
we right. were all doing these things for a few weeks. Uh, right. Is this, this a flash is, in the pan of support? It's a flash in the pan. And the truth is, I mean, and I do say this in the book, that, that one of the reasons I think a consumer movement for art is less important is that I don't really think that that's the important reform. I think the important reform has to happen through government action, and government action will happen through political pressure. Markets are structured. Markets are structured by government laws and regulations and litigation sometimes. And as I said before, there's still tons of money in the arts. It's just going to the platforms. And the platforms need to be contained. They need to be broken up. They need to be regulated. We can regulate them like utilities. So YouTube can't get away with paying $700 for a million streams. That's what it works out to. It's 700 of a cent per stream, which works out to $700 for a million streams. Wow. This, is, you know, this is why stream and half of streaming happens on YouTube. But YouTube generates billions, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year for Google. The company is, YouTube alone is estimated to be worth $300 billion. So, you know, I think it needs to be spun off from Google and it needs to be, and its rates need to be regulated by a government formula. I mean, that's a big deal. But the thing that's actually made me most hopeful about this stuff is that we actually seem to be getting serious about regulating the tech industry, about uh, antitrust regulation. For better or for worse, the Justice Department just brought suit against Google. The House, the Democrats just issued this big report about all four of the big platforms, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon. It's a long road, but um, this, I think, is going to be the real answer if we can get to it. Yeah, hopefully that Monopoly board will change a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. With the new and- administration, that's right. Yeah. I mean, we're recording this now, you know, within, are we less, we're less than two are we a week away? A One week away. week away. We're a week away. Oh, right. We are exactly a week away. Our listeners know the future that we are anxiously speeding towards at this moment. Well, guys, I hope it worked out well. Those of you who are listening <laughs> yeah. to us in, in the future. <laughs> we hope you're all sighing with relief. That's right. That things have worked out in a slightly better way. Right. And not crying... That's right. Like we are right now. Empty champagne bottles. Yes. Right. Yeah. (sighs) What a time to be alive (laughs) and having these discussions. Uh, This is more of a personal question. Well, not a personal question, but a question for for you and your experience. But what is it like putting a book out during a pandemic when typically one would go on a book tour and be probably promoting their work in person a lot? What, what has that experience been like? Well, it's really sucked. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for, for you guys and for other people who have let me come on. That book tour, I was looking forward to it so much because it's, you know, I sit alone in a room. I did talk to people over the phone. I had these interviews, but my work is solitary. And that payoff of going out on book tour and really interacting with people and having them to respond in person and that sort of human connection that can't happen over the internet and specifically artists. And I was hoping to meet some of the people. I was hoping to meet a lot of the people that I interviewed. I was, you know, people in New York, people in LA. So that didn't happen. But the real thing is that when my book came out, we were dealing with a pandemic, a recession caused by a pandemic, an election and a racial justice movement. Um, all of those are incredibly important things, but they left no room f- to talk about anything else. So the book really received almost no attention 
in the sort of official media, like radio. Newspapers didn't cover it, didn't get a review from the Times. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, and I don't think I need to explain to you or your listeners, attention is everything. We live in an attention economy. And when you can't get attention, things just sink. They sink to the bottom. So, I mean, I don't think I need to say this, but I do feel this, like people are dealing with so much worse now. I mean, they really are. I mean, I see it all around me. So I think if it had been like a, like a weird thing that screwed only me, it would have been much harder to deal with. The fact that like we're all suffering together really, really does make it hurt a lot less. Yeah, I had heard a friend say this and it just feels truer and truer every day, but we are all in the same storm, but we are not all in the same boat. But I think all all of our individual boats are pretty, pretty affected for the most part. And it's, it's such a tough time to be doing anything, much less like living, but to also be trying to produce creative work and, and share it and put it out there in a time where we can't gather and, and see things and speak about it in person. It's, it's so difficult, but those are the conversations that are so necessary to keep us moving forward and keep us in community and, and growing. But it's, it's definitely an, an odd time to try to problem solve on the most basic sense, but also try to figure out, you know, our own survival and, and also just the whole world. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, this is like the difference between having a real job and being a freelance creator. Like, I mean, obviously, people with jobs have, have a lot of them have suffered a great deal, but also for many of them, it's like you have this thing to go back to, even if you've been furloughed and it's awful now, you have a thing to go back to. But like, there's no thing to go back to if you're a freelance creator. And maybe you just had a gallery show canceled that you've been working towards for three years or 10 years. It's like the next yeah. big step in your career trajectory. And that may not come back. You know, musicians who had tours canceled, comedians who had tours canceled, people who work in Hollywood, you know, aspiring actors or writers or directors who had a, a TV show, they had shot the pilot. It's gone now. It's, it's so heartbreaking because it's already so hard to do these things. And people are so, people in the arts are so underappreciated and, and not, you know, not, and undervalued, not just financially. It just, it really, I mean, it really gets me angry. I mean, that was honestly partly what made me so angry that the media outlets ignored my book. A, a lot of the anger wasn't about me. It was like, how can you not realize that this is important? I mean, we know that we don't pay teachers enough and we know that we don't pay nurses enough, but I think people understand that they should at least should be paid more. But the, the difference, the gap between how much we value the arts, everybody values the arts tremendously and how much we value artists, is just enormous. It's like nobody mm -hmm. makes that connection. Yeah, I'm probably getting this statistic in um, correct, but I I think it's on the main page of United States Artists, the grant making organization's website, based on a 
maybe it's now an early 2000s study um, around the percentage of people surveyed that uh, appreciate art in their lives versus those that say they appreciate artists. And the, the gap is really staggering. So I think part of it comes back to that initial mission of, or just the, you know, the unfortunate truth that most people don't really see the work that goes into making a life as a creator, what what goes into producing this work. And so I think what's interesting about how you talk about it is, you know, related to all of these other industries, like the growth of the digital economy and the internet and how, you know, all of these sort of progressive technologies, one of the results of that has been to um, slowly devalue the you know, the work and labor of um, producing the content that is so freely and easily consumed. Um, so I do hope that people are thinking about the topics in your book, both now and post-pandemic, um, because as we've seen, artists are going to be impacted by this for a very long time. Yeah, I didn't realize there was somebody had actually done, there are actually statistics about this, about the gap that I was just talking about. I have to get that study from you. and They're out there. I'll, yeah, we'll find a link. We'll include that in the show notes too. But, let me, but you also reminded me of the chapter that was actually... In case you really want to be depressed by the numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's also good to have numbers to, you know, shove at people. Um, yes. The chapter that was the most unexpected in some ways the most interesting for me to write was the one about the life cycle. It sort of sits to one side of the book because it's not specifically even really about the internet age. But I realized as I was doing these interviews that patterns were coming to the surface in the stories that people told me and that I could kind of construct a chapter that was like the generic life cycle of the artist from birth to middle age, at least. Birth because... First of all, people, a lot of people tell me that they felt that they were born, you know, they always knew. That's what they tell me. I always knew. I was writing when I was three. I was, you know, playing around with visual art when I was five or six, or I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was 12. You don't hear that a lot in other professions, you know? I think people generally, it's not until adolescence, at least, where they start to kind of narrow it on what they think they want to do, which may not even be what they end up doing. But artists seem to be born to it. I think artists are a different kind of person than the rest of us in a really great way. The second stage of the life cycle is sort of childhood and adolescence. And the pattern that I saw there was this relentless discouragement from parents, from school, from peers, from society in general. So this relates to what we're talking about, how artists are undervalued. I hear that it's different in places like Italy, but in America, at least, if a young person says they want to be an artist, they're scoffed at, they're misunderstood. Often schools, I have that whole passage from Andy J. Pizza, Andy J. Miller, about his experience and his friend's experience in high school. Artists have different brains than the rest of us, and their uh, gifts do not necessarily show up or don't show up on the tests that we give students. So if you're not also academically gifted, but you are creatively gifted, your school may see you as stupid or lazy or just not you know, just, just not, not a good student. And so all of this tremendous talent is going to waste. But more importantly, artists are getting discouraged from pursuing, you know, potential artists are getting derailed at a very young age. So, I mean, I think it's maybe too much to hope that there'll be a large-scale shift in that kind of attitude. But it would be nice if we could push back on it at least somewhat, learn to value young artists the way they deserve to be valued. One of my favorite chapters in your book is actually the one called Art History, 
where you really lay out the evolution of the independent creator over time and the paradigm shifts that occurred um, along with the origin of this term artist by its modern definition. And so this actually made me rethink the title of your book completely because at first it sounds really controversial, you know, the death of the artist. But this chapter really changed my understanding of that term and was also fascinating to hear about the the origin of this um, starving artist stereotype. And so I wondered if you could give us a quick history lesson here, um, in particular, the history of this term artist as we understand it today. Sure. This was also in some ways sort of a starting point for the book. I mean, I talk about this in that Atlantic article from five years ago. I was asked to give a talk at an art school here in Portland about creative entrepreneurship because of stuff I had already written. And I started to think about like, well, you know, what was it before it was this creative entrepreneurship thing? And I, and I started to, and I realized like, well, actually there's this whole history here. It's not so simple that like, well, we used to think of artists as these kind of solitary genius, you know, bohemian types, and now they're creative entrepreneurs. It's more complicated than that. So before we got to the solitary genius bohemian, we had everything up to and including the Renaissance, like really from the beginning of what we know of human history, where artists were artisans. The word artist and the word artisan are, are the same word. I mean, they sound the same because they were up to a certain point the same. So you served apprenticeships and, you know, you worked a contract and you didn't have this exalted status. And art in general did not have this exalted status. And in fact, art did not exist as a concept. This is one of the things that I learned in, in doing the research on this. The idea that, you know, music, dance, writing, drama, visual art all belong to the same category that we call art. That concept did not exist. And all of this starts to change at, at the beginning of what we call modernity, sort of 18th century, 1700s, at the same time that, you know, we're beginning to question received beliefs about religion and about monarchy and aristocracy. And we have the American Revolution and the French Revolution and the emergence of people we call intellectuals who are people who kind of question the status quo. And as religion declines as a belief, as a sort of source of meaning for a lot of sort of, let's say, educated progressive people, not for everybody, art suddenly uh, gradually rises to take its place. And that's when we get, first of all, art as a unitary concept, one thing that includes all of those things, but does not include the crafts. And second of all, art becomes art with a capital A. So it becomes this sort of magical, spiritual, wonderful thing. And I, and I say that with no irony at all. This place that we turn to for meaning, to think about moral questions, to think about transcendent questions, to think about, think through questions of purpose and questions of society. And it's then and only then that we start to believe that artists, the role of the artist is to speak truth to power, to stand on the margins, to criticize, to tell us things that we don't want to hear. These are all ideas that are less than 300 years old. But the other thing that came along with this development is capitalism. And here again, we get to things that maybe people don't want to hear that I didn't want to hear. Capitalism made this possible. Before capitalism, the model was patronage, right? You got money from the church or from a lord or from the king, uh, maybe a wealthy merchant, and you did what they told you to do. And you didn't rock the boat. You didn't challenge any of those authorities. This was still a time when you could get killed for doing that. Uh, the market, the capitalist market came along and enabled people to circumvent patronage by selling directly to the audience, to the, the new middle class that was also emerging because of capitalism. 
And kind of a key moment there, 1710, the UK passed the first copyright law. So it started right then and there with writers in Great Britain being able to sell their work directly, make a living at it, and publish what they want. But that also meant that a lot more people wanted to do it. And so all of a sudden you had more and more people and, you know, art is glamorous. Poetry then is what was glamorous. And then later it spread to the music, music and the visual arts, which are sort of more institutionalized. So the more people want to do it, you know, I mean, this is still a problem today. There's a great book by a Dutch artist and economist that I quote several times in the book called Why Are Artists Poor? His name is Hans Abing. A-B-B-I-N-G, Why Are Artists Poor? And it's a great book full of all kinds of insights, but the answer to the title boils down to one sentence. Artists are poor because there are too many of them, and there are too many of them because too many of them are delusional about their chances. I hate to say this, but part of my purpose in the book is to, you know, give people a reality check. And that's when the starving artists, the struggling artists, the bohemian became a thing and a stereotype because you know, there were just, there are just too many people because it is a very enviable lifestyle. And because a lot of people feel called to it. I mean, it's enviable sort of spiritually, uh, psychologically, but to continue just very briefly with sort of that. So first phase is the artisan, second phase is the bohemian and the bohemian is also sort of a response. It's not just you're a bohemian because you're poor, but also you're a bohemian because you want to stay on the margins of the market. It's a, it's a, it is a, a response to you know, the uh, power, the hegemony of capitalism and the market and, and, and all that. This starts to change after World War I and especially after World War II, where we start to build all of these institutions that actually are in the business of helping to support artists. Universities hire artists to teach. The MFA is invented in the 20s, but it really explodes after the war. Grant, you know, foundations and, and arts councils. The NEA is created in like 65, I think, 64, 65. So all of a sudden, for at least some section of artists, sort of the, the ones who, who are may, managed to achieve just some sort of modicum of success, kind of become like a mid-tier, full-time working artist, all of a sudden you're a professional. You're a professional like a doctor or a lawyer, maybe not as well paid, but you went to school and then you got a graduate degree and your, and your career moves through a set of institutions. So the third phase is the artist as professional. And I think that's a phase that started to come to an end with the internet because the internet, first of all, enabled you to circumvent the institutions, but at the cost of putting yourself directly into the market because the institutions mediate the market for you. And also the internet started to undermine the business models, the financial viability of those institutions themselves, whether it's the labels and the publishers or in a very different way, universities in, in terms of how much, you know, universities actually pay the people who teach at them. That may not be the internet. It may be other things that were happening at the same time. But basically that professional model where you're going to get an MFA and then move through institutions and have a middle-class life is really getting dismantled. So now we're in a fourth phase or a fourth paradigm. And I end up I hate the term creative entrepreneur. I think it's complete propaganda. So I, I, I end up saying, you know, I think the best term is producer. We're just producers now. We're just kind of putting stuff out. We're trying, we're just these free entities in the marketplace, just trying to, you know, find what work we can for what money we can um, and surviving in the market without any protections. You know, you can't be a bohemian anymore because you can't live cheaply. 
and you, you can't, it's hard to be a professional for the reasons I just said. So um, here we are. Yes, it seems in some ways that this book is about the rise and fall of the artist middle class. And it sounds like there was really a huge expansion in post-World War II in not only the middle class in general, but this artist as professional um, within higher education, the number of degrees, all of this really exploding. And I'm wondering now if the pandemic will start to create a contraction. A contraction in what in particular? Well, all of it, maybe. (laughs) I think artists, for all the reasons you pointed out, are struggling and have been struggling and are really having to confront the, the realities of of this instability or job instability. Um, But even within higher education, I think Amanda mentioned that I work in higher ed as well as being an artist. And I think that these, these institutions um, and also galleries and museums, you know, they're all struggling uh, as well to, to adapt. And, you know, there are also surveys that are showing that maybe, you know, one in eight museums may never reopen and that, you know, many galleries may, also close and the sort of mid-tier gallery has also been disappearing for a while. So I think it seems like it's happening both on an individual and an institutional level. No, absolutely. The truth is that this is just one of these, well, it's, it's, it's two things. It's, it's one of the trends that I talk about that's also true in society as a whole, this decline or collapse of the middle class. And it's also one of the things that I talk about in the book that's gotten much worse in the pandemic. So already in the book, I'm talking about the loss of mid-tier galleries, independent labels, independent presses, that whole and 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 of the mid-tier artists, the mid-tier artist who's associated with those kinds of institutions, the mid-list author, you know, um, the sort of uh, mid-budget movie, all of these things, because there's a movement, you know, even with the money that's left in the arts, there's the blockbuster effect. So the biggest stars have more and more. The biggest galleries are bigger and bigger. And then there's all these sort of struggling little tadpoles at the bottom, the indie movie, the indie musician, the artist-run gallery. And these things tend to come and go very quickly. The pandemic is just, is just accelerated all these things. I mean, I, uh, somebody predicted several months ago, somebody who, uh, who runs an independent music venue, that if this continues into next year, 90% of independent music venues could disappear. Um, and, it, and this goes across the arts. So it's, it's, it's horrible. I think, a lot of, I think a lot of people who are who are, who are sustaining careers in the arts might have left the arts already. And by the time this is done, many more of them will have. The only thing I, and then, and, and, and the big, the big uh, players with the deep pockets are just going to consolidate. So the Indian music fest venues are going to go out of business and Live Nation, which, you know, which controls the large concert in, you know, every dimension of that business. They own the venues, they sell the tickets, they manage the talent, uh, they run some of the big festivals, they'll stick around. But in terms of fewer artists, you know, there are always new ones. And this is both good and bad. And this is one of the reasons that people don't realize how tough it is. Brooklyn is always full of aspiring young artists of every description. And, you know, I liken it in the book to like the invasion of Normandy, the way the successive waves of soldiers would get cut down as they, as they hit the beach. But there's always a way of coming behind them. 
So I, I, I don't, you know, I don't want this to be all doom and gloom. The book itself <laughs> is not all doom and gloom, as you know. I mean, I really am serious about that first word of the subtitle, how. How are people doing it? And I have 24 profiles in the book, six for each of the four arts I talk about. Musicians, writers, visual artists, people who do film and television. And they're all, all 24 of those people are managing some better than others. But they all sort of provide models and sort of sets of ideas about how it pos- might be possible to manage. Yeah, obviously, this year is just kind of setting the tone of, <laughs> of everything, um, because there's just so much heavy going around. But I, I feel like it was a reality check, like reading your book, but not necessarily a doom and gloom way. It, it definitely just made me feel very seen and made me feel like, okay, I am not the only one that's doing it this way. In fact, we all seem to be kind of doing it this way. And it was really reassuring to make me kind of feel like I'm on the right path that like artists that I look up to that I'm like, sort of, there, there are some parallels. Um, So that was really comforting. And I feel like it was also full of if you're not, if you're at a really early point in your creative path, I feel like it would be an extremely helpful read to get some examples of what creating a creative career for yourself can look like. And I, I really appreciated you had said you hated the or the term creative entrepreneurs, but I think in the book at one point you had mentioned it as more like entrepreneurial creatives, and that's the way we try to think of it as well. Like we are creative individuals that know how to come up with creative solutions. And we have an unbelievably diverse set of, of tools in our tool belts because we've had to figure things out on our own. And artists, we can make it, but it's it's tough. And I think that having a reality check is really helpful to know that you're you're doing it right or if you're doing it wrong or, or just to see what other people are doing for a point of comparison and possibly some reverse engineering. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, yes to all of that including what you said about the entrepreneurial creative, which is a phrase I'm much more willing to sign on to. And one of the things that was so impressive to me about the people I talked about was just how flexible and adaptable and creative they are about their careers. And and, and not just that they're flexible and adaptable, but also the spirit of it, like the spirit of optimism and resilience, I, I think is really extraordinary. But I absolutely think that, I don't know if every artist is born with it, but any artist who makes it past a certain point and it's not a very late point, past 25 or 30, if you're still doing it, you you are, by definition, you must be flexible and creative and resourceful. Nicole, we've made it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and what you said about um, one of the things I wanted with this book is for the artists who read it to feel, like you said, to feel seen, to feel understood, to, to recognize that they're not alone, to recognize that it's not their fault, you know? Yeah. The struggles, the financial struggles you're going through, they're not your fault. It might mean that you need to do things differently, but it doesn't mean that your art is bad or that you're a loser or this is what comes with the territory. Yeah, I think, I mean, like you mentioned, a lot of our work can, or the production can can tend to be really solitary. And so part of part of our hope with the podcast is to shed light on, you know, those realities and to share stories and solidarity. But I think part of what is also really valuable about your book is being able to zoom out and to hear about these stories in the context of these larger structural change issues and changes and to kind of understand the 
systemic piece of it. And that's something that we don't maybe as often get to um, hear about connected in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I mean, that's another thing that I wanted to do with the book, actually, is to is to connect things that tend not to be connected and to 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 show how this, you know, this is, is a part of this is a part of this and not just there have been other books, other good books about how what the Internet has done to art in terms of demonetization. But I wanted to have a chapter about rented space and I wanted to have a chapter grappling with the question of art and money. And I also wanted to talk about all of the arts. That's the other thing. People have written about music and there's a conversation in the music world all the time about this. But I wanted people to see beyond their individual silos and to be able to look at things that apply to everybody, which may also mean that the solutions might apply to everybody and and should involve everybody. Yes, I was really struck by how how much overlap there was between all these different disciplines. And like Amanda shared, we kind of operate in different, you know, pockets of the the arts. And so coming from the visual arts side, the kind of maker and craft side, the music world, um, Amanda is much more familiar um, because, uh, like she said, of her husband's career path. But um, just learning about how musicians and writers and um, film and um, entertainment professionals and visual artists are all really impacted by these same these same issues was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. We're all dealing with the internet. We're all dealing with rent and tuition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one more topic that I wanted to cover or make sure that we bring up because um, it's another area that I was a little bit surprised by. And that's one of the last chapters where you talk about the role of copyright um, and copyright law. And you mentioned this already in the sort of history lesson you gave us earlier. And I think that most artists have a sense of the importance of copyright and and copyright law, but even I had no idea the scale that this really impacts our industry and how large tech companies have been able to exploit and profit off of outdated copyright laws, along with the the demonetization of content. So I wondered if you could just explain this a bit more. Yeah, sure. It's it's one of the last chapters where I I talk about piracy and and that leads to copyright, and that leads to the issue uh, to the big tech companies in general. Piracy is not a, what I learned is that piracy is not like some teenager sharing a song with some other teenager. It's something that happens at scale, uh, at enormous scale, through pirate sites. You know, every movie in the world is pirated. Every every song they can get their hands on is pirated, and they're doing it for profit because you know monetizing the traffic with ads. Who's serving the ads? It's the same person who serves the ads, the same entity that serves the ads everywhere on the internet. It's Google. So Google is profiting enormously from piracy, from pirate sites, from listing pirated content in their search, from piracy on Google. Uh, I forget, I forget, but, but uh, those blog sites that Google has. Um, this was all explained to me by a filmmaker whose work was pirated and who became an anti-piracy activist. And Facebook, um, something like 70% of their top thousand videos on Facebook are pirated. And YouTube, again, owned by Google, piracy. Amazon, this counterfeits with Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous business for these companies. Someone quoted me a statistic. She couldn't verify it in terms of giving me an exact source. But just this year when I was doing follow-up interviews during the pandemic, that something like a third of Google's revenue comes from piracy. 
And of course, Google is worth well over a trillion dollars. So um, these companies could eliminate it the same way they eliminate pornography from their sites. They're clearly capable of building the algorithms that allow them to do it. But no one is forcing them to do it. The law that governs all this, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, came out in 98. Google was six weeks old. Napster did not yet exist. And Mark Zuckerberg was a freshman in high school. Oh, no. And the law has not been updated since then, certainly not in any substantial way. So the um, mechanism, when, when you see something on the Internet, on, on Google, on YouTube, anywhere, that's pirated, your stuff that's pirated, you, you can file what's called a takedown notice under the DMCA. You have to do this one at a time for every single link, every single oh instance. God. This is what this filmmaker, Ellen Seidler, did. She spent an entire summer filing thousands of takedown notices. And you can, take, you can force them to take down one link and then another one pops up the next day. Mm. So one of the big uh, agendas in the arts, uh, legislative agendas for a long time now has been Digital Millennium Copyright Act updating. But the power of the tech giants, Google has been the biggest lobbyist in Washington for years now. I hope that, you know, this is, like I said, I hope that we're finally taking these guys on. Well, I think it's, um, yes, thank you so much for that explanation. Um, And I I think it's really important for artists to hear this because, you know, you see these things in the news or you see that the Supreme Court just brought this antitrust law to, you know, to Google. And it seems like maybe it could impact your life or the way that you work online, but it, it can also feel very distant or disconnected from your your career, your life as an artist. And so I think really beginning to understand the ways that this has a huge impact on the industry at large. And then, you know, by consequence, your individual ability to make a living or not off of your work is is incredibly valuable. So that's, again, something I really appreciate about your book is really putting it in those terms and connecting all of these larger, larger issues to the plight of individual artists. Thank you. And let me just say that the last chapter of my book, uh, I talk about a bunch of different organizations that are doing things in response to this, because yeah, it's great to know, oh my God, this, this Justice Department suit of Google might actually have some impact on me and my livelihood some, someplace down the road, but it's even better to know there's an organization in my field, in my industry, that's trying to work on some of this stuff. So I list a bunch of them. I mentioned Wage. Um, I mentioned the Artist Rights Alliance in the book. There are more of them now because of the pandemic. The Artist Rights Alliance is a musicians group that works on these issues. Just in the last few months, there's a new thing called the Music Workers Alliance. That's, it's sort of like wage for musicians. It's really directed at the venues that pay artists. There's a very large organization that started in, the, in film and TV called Creative Future. And they, they go to Capitol Hill every year. I mean, they're big. They're, they're studios and individual artists and all kinds of other organizations, you know, Alamo Draft House, the, the theater, uh, the movie theater, they go, to, they go to Capitol Hill every year, at least before the pandemic, and actually make presentations to legislators. So there are actual uh, organizations that you can join, that you can work with, and plenty more that I haven't listed. And, and I, you know, it's important. It's really important that, um, that people's consciousness get raised and that they, I know it's hard. I mean, you're trying to make a living, you're trying to stay sane. But I think you can also get a feeling of power and agency and community from participating in that kind of organizing. 
Yeah. What is one takeaway for artists that have yet to read your book that might help modify their behavior online or, you know, one um, kind of starter way to get involved? Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question. Well, I think, I mean, this is really pulling from your book, but some of the things that you mentioned (laughs) were, in addition, and you've even said this um, throughout the course of our conversation, but, you know, being responsible consumers, um, not taking things for free, not taking advantage of of friends or or other artists, um, paying each other, um, again, not hinging your business model on on free labor. And so those are things I think, you know, even within our own ecosystems, we can start to do. Um, but if there's anything else that comes to mind with. No, I, I, yeah, I mean, certainly like everyone else, we're also consumers of art. I hate that word consumers, but we're the audience <laughs> for art and we can behave responsibly as consumers. But I, again, I also want to say advocate for yourself. Uh, don't be afraid to advocate for yourself and, you know, reach out or join with others who are advocating collectively. I think those are really important things. Oh, yes. Thank you so much uh, for saying that. And for listeners that have not read your book yet, where where should we send them to go buy your book? Uh, don't go to Amazon. Um, <laughs> the book is available everywhere. I suggest that you, if you can get it through your local bookstore, that's wonderful. There's a new site uh, called Bookshop. I'm 99% sure that it's called Bookshop. And it's a platform, but it's a platform that helps connect people to their local bookstore. Perfect. Yeah, we can find that and include a link to it. But yes, definitely support your local bookstore if you can. And definitely go buy this book and pay for it. It is excellent. I highly recommend it. I am grateful to have had this chance to talk with you and have you on the podcast. I feel like I could talk for another hour with more questions. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. And thanks for making this book. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. If you really enjoyed this conversation and want to continue learning by reading the book, you can enter to win it in a giveaway from us to you. All you have to do is leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, and we will announce the winner on our December 3rd episode. So that'll be two weeks from now. Well, two weeks from releasing this episode. And if you can't wait to get your hands on the book, don't forget to click the link in our show notes for bookshop.org where you can get the book and support a local small business in the process. And thanks so much for listening. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. I'm just going to Was I supposed to be talking? Uh, you can talk. I just want to make sure that I am recording it properly. Okay. I'm just talking. Um, I'm talking. Blah, blah, blah. Here, I'm going to test blah, it blah, as blah, well. Blah. Test, test, test. <laughs> testing, testing. Yeah. Okay. I think it's good.